would you want to become a cop? I like to slam people's heads up against walls. We're going back to the movies. 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 Movies. Yeah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat McGee. Hello, Ben. How's it going? Oh, you know, it's it's going. Things are going. We've had a lot of trouble getting this episode off the ground. It's okay. We roll with the punches here. We're like, you know, rookie <laughs> cops. We're, we're on the first day of the job. Hey, you know, that reminds me. I've been wanting to say to everybody who's been listening to the podcast so far, uh, thanks for bearing with us with our amateur audio techniques you know we're, we're new to this but we're learning a lot and we're getting a lot better i hope Bake it till y'all you can make hear it, ben. thanks for listening to our 100 <laughs> percent quality recordings guys and uh we're doing everything we phonically can to make this the perfect listening experience i mean i could sing please don't um so back to the movies is a podcast where ben and i go back to a certain year of cinema and explore the movies that kind of made that year. We got hits, we got flops, we got weird stuff, we got mainstream stuff. We are reliving the year 1990 in our first season. This is our seventh film of 1990. How are you feeling about 1990 so far, Ben? It has been more of a mixed bag than I anticipated. I mean, yeah, there's we're we're looking at the whole year. No year is going to be infallible. I'll give I'll give listeners a peek behind the curtain. When we first started developing the idea behind the podcast, we had a much more limited schedule in mind. But you and I are both completionists. We like to get a full picture of things. And so we wound up adding more and more movies to the slate, which means that not all of them are going to be certifiable classics. But I think that all of them are going to have something to offer. We, We haven't seen any complete worthless duds yet. Um, and I think our schedule reflects that. I don't think we're going to be watching like beach party 12 or some crap like that. And even the films that are less, um, that we like less still have merit in shaping our picture of what the year was like for cinema. Exactly. Exactly. So Ben, what's our movie this week? It was one of your picks. Oh boy. Our movie this week is a movie I was really excited to talk about. And I think we're going to have a really fun discussion because our opinions may not be shared equally amongst the two of us. This is a great Catherine Bigelow cop thriller called Blue Steel. Blue Steel starring Jamie Lee Curtis and release year was 1990. What, what's the release day? March 16th. March 16th. Okay. So we're in the red October area yeah this is all still we're still in the spring of of 1990 uh pretty woman's coming out about now this is definitely sort of an also ran a kind of forgotten film from that period when you compare it to some of those other colossal hits but i think it's maybe a little unjustly forgotten i don't know i get the impression you don't agree i watched this movie last night on voodoo for free with a few ads but not too many ads uh if you want to watch the movie it's there on voodoo and my really fast review was that the movie is impressionistic but to a fault. It is too dumb for how smart it feels. And I'm not really a fan of movies that don't do the work on the plot unless there's something really strong elsewhere, like a truly amazing performance, 
like the movie I mentioned on Misery, Falling Down. Really dumb movie. Really <laughs> stupid plot. But has a great central performance from Michael Douglas. Oh, man. I'm going to mention Falling Down in every episode, by the way. Well, this is a particularly good episode to mention it on because the films share some DNA. Exactly. But I got to tell you now. Right, hold on. Hold on. Let me finish. Um, okay. Okay. I'm, I'm not a fan of movies that don't do the work on the plot. Also, like, they if they have a unique vibe, I'm kind of into them. Like, Mulholland Drive is a movie that I really have learned to love over the years. I didn't love it the first time, but, like, I sort of learned to appreciate what it was doing with subtext and what it was doing with its vibe. And I just, this one on this first initial watch, it just did not do it for me. I'm sorry to say there was a lot to like about it, but as a full piece, I was not there. So what do you have to say? All right. Ben? I'm pulling the gloves off right here at the start. So I picked this movie for us to watch. I was really insistent on it. It was one that was on the chopping block many times. And I said, no, we have to do this for a couple of reasons. One, um, I think it's really important to cover films from female directors. This is a Catherine Bigelow film. It's one of her first. It's her third ever feature film. Um, and she is a hugely important and prolific female director. She's the first woman to ever win the Best Directing Oscar at the Academy Awards. You know, she is a critical figure for this time. And a lot of that comes from two things, I think. First, how consistently she bucks the perception of what a female director should be and what kind of films they should make. And two, from constantly pushing the envelope stylistically for really advancing the modern conception of what movies should look and feel like. When you compare this movie to even something like Hunt for Red October, another action thriller that comes out at the same time, I feel like this movie looks a lot more modern than Hunt for Red October does. It doesn't necessarily look better, but it looks more modern. It looks more like the movies that are being made today. It is a beautifully shot movie. I I will give it that. Oh my God. It's fucking gorgeous. So to go back to the points that you were making that in order for a movie like this, where plot is maybe a little wooly, you know, particularly in the second half of this movie, characters just kind of jump around New York city with no real logic. Not every scene follows the next with a sense of coherence. You said it needs to have either a really strong performance, which I think this movie does. Jamie Lee Curtis is incredible in this movie. I think it is one of her all-time best performances, and I think she is a great actress. Or you said it has to have a truly unique vibe. And again, I think this movie's really vibing in a really interesting way. It has this almost dream-like logic in just the fact that it's so stylish and the plot is so sparse means that you kind of have to feel the way the movie looks, the, the the mood it creates, the ambience it creates, which I think gives it a really unique vibe. So on those two fronts, I actually think it does put itself in the company of, you know, not necessarily something as genius as Mulholland Drive, which I think actually succeeds because there is a plot under the surface. It's just so obscured. It's hard to see the first time you watch it. But certainly in the camp of something like Falling Down, I think this movie is at least as good as that one. And Probably better. I will say this. This movie does not require half of the movie to be cut out in order to make it watchable, uh, which is falling down. <laughs> uh, Pendergast! <laughs> ben, when was the first time you watched this movie? Like, what's your history with it? It was actually pretty recently. It was in the last couple of years. It probably bad practice to plug another podcast on your podcast, but I'm a big fan of the podcast Blank Check, where they cover director filmographies, and they did a mini-series on Catherine Bigelow, and whenever they talk about a movie, I always want to watch it, and that was the first time I checked this one out, because they 
covered it on that podcast and it sounded interesting. Certainly the cast really had me intrigued. I've always been a big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. Halloween is my all-time favorite horror film. I'm a huge, huge Ron Silver fan. I think he's amazing, and I want to watch everything that he's ever been in, which is quite a bit of stuff. And I, I liked Bigelow just fine. I mean, Point Break's an amazing film. I was a big fan of Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. So all those elements combined that when I heard them discussing it, I, I knew it was something I had to check out. But I wasn't really ready for the impression that it would leave on me. The movie has some, I think, indelible moments, mostly driven by the visuals and by Jamie Lee Curtis's performance that really stuck with me long after I had seen the movie for the first time. So when I saw it on the list of 1990 films, it was immediately at the top of my queue for things that we had to cover. It's funny you say it it cast a big impression on you because I felt like a very intellectual person because when the movie ended, I was like, I think that movie was impressionistic like a painting. It's a very impressionistic <laughs> film. And I didn't even really know what that meant to me, but it, it felt like a vibe piece and like a impressionist painting that you would see coming out of France in the 1800s or something. Like it's more, the, the images are more important than whatever kind of story it's telling in a way. And I, I don't, I want to say, I don't want to undersell the other elements of this film because I think it's not only an amazing looking movie. I think it has a lot on its mind. I love a movie that's exploring a lot of different themes. You know, oftentimes when a writer thinks about writing a film, they'll have one big idea that is the central thesis of their movie. And that can get a little cloying sometimes. This movie has a lot of little ideas that it can't get out of its mind. It doesn't really have a coherent take on what they mean, but just the way they are, the way they feel, the way they shape 1990 New York City. Things like violence, like sex, like masculinity, like domestic abuse, like how money and modern life have depersonalized people, like sexism and the relationships between police and civilians. And some of these things are part of the narrative and are expressed explicitly, but a lot of them just happen in the background with little details from the way that background actors move or the way that certain plot points are structured, where they take place. It's just a really, really interesting movie. It has a lot of interesting things to sink your teeth into. Yeah. I guess my problem, though, is that I never felt fully connected to anything in the movie. Like, there are all these cool ideas, and there's all these cool images, and a really nice soundtrack, and good performances, like you said, especially from Jamie Lee Curtis. But for me, it just didn't really track all the way. Like I wasn't feeling personally attached to anything. I was more just appreciating. It was like walking through an art gallery and I was I was never moved by one of the paintings. I was just kind of like, oh, I like what she did with the light shafts on this one. I mean, it's interesting that you say that Catherine Bigelow begins her career as an academic. She's not a filmmaker by trade. She's an artist and an academic. She's a painter. She painted. She was a painter. She she did. I mean, then she studied film theory at Columbia after painting. And her first short film, which I've never seen, but I really want to, is this incredible sounding movie where it's just 20 minutes of two guys in a fist fight with two semioticians talking about the fight in voiceover the whole time about like what the fight represents and how they are communicating with their violence. So, I mean, that's where she comes from is a very, very dry academic perspective. Well, and that's sort of how I felt watching this movie. I was like, 
okay, I see what she's doing. I, I understand. It's just that when I can choose between this or something like Mountains of the Moon, I <laughs> I hate to say it, but I almost choose Mountains of the Moon because I can understand the characters a little bit more and I can understand the story and I can appreciate like the background stuff and do the research afterwards and learn something. It's like music in a way. Like this album didn't do it for me. This painting didn't do it for me. This film didn't do it for me. Is... Is Mountains of the Moon our new metric for a well-intentioned movie that still fails? It's got all the pieces, but they just didn't get the shit together. Like, they didn't have the good, the good sprinkle of juju to make it work. What was, what was the Mountains of the Moon of 2019? What was, like, the best-intentioned movie that didn't quite click? I have no idea. That's a tough question, Ben. I can't answer it. I'm going to come up with a, a slightly controversial answer. Uh, I'm going to say Jojo Rabbit. Oh, okay. A movie that has a lot of disparate elements that I really, really love from Taika Waititi to the performances and the actors to the humor. But the sum total, like, just didn't quite click for me, um, except for in a few specific scenes that just never really landed the way it's supposed to. Okay, well, something that I've been thinking about, if we want to talk about Blue Steel... Blue Steel is every B minus A24 movie with a great trailer that I've ever seen. It's got a great vibe. <laughs> it looks amazing. The trailer is awesome, but all it was was the vibe. It didn't have the soul that I needed, the characters that I love, the writing that's on point. It just didn't do it for me. All right, let's start breaking the movie down in order because I kind of want to figure out where this movie loses you because on the one hand, I do agree that this movie is flawed. It really loses its way, particularly after sort of the midpoint. For a while, it really loses its way. But I actually think that a lot of the things that, that you're criticizing it for, I feel like it does well. I feel like it has really strong characters. So I'm really curious, like, sort of where our disconnect is happening. And it's good to go through the movie in order anyway, since it just helps ground our listeners in what's going on as far as the discussion goes. So let's start from the beginning of the movie. I love, like, the whole opening 15 plus minutes of this movie. So it starts off with a training sequence and then over the credits we get this montage of Jamie Lee Curtis graduating from the police academy. The opening credits is the gun close-ups, which you're kind of oh, that's getting right. a sense of what movie you're walking into. You're like, okay, this is this is a little impressionistic if I do use that word again. It's also it's almost Fincher-esque in how perfect the imagery is, how flawlessly photographed the close-ups of this gun are. I can't imagine how long that must have taken. You see her graduate. She's got a buddy. And, like, it's all shot really wonderfully. And, like, there's the fake-out opening with the two very dedicated Police Academy actors <laughs> who are just very into their role. I was wondering, does every NYPD graduate have to go through, like, an Oscar-caliber acting simulation? <laughs> Look, this is the first of many times that this movie doesn't quite seem to get what actual police life is like and police work is like. But the scene itself is really effective, and I think it's really effective in contrast with a scene that we'll get to shortly displaying the danger of being a cop. Like how scary that is, that how the people you could be trying to help could could be those that will hurt you. 
I really, really love the dinner with her family. Oh, yeah. I have a note about that. If any dinner scene in any movie, if you cut in at an awkward silence, it immediately means the family is a shitty family. <laughs> if there's a five second <laughs> silence when the scene begins, it's over for this family. They're they're screwed. And this is a very shitty family. This is a very shitty family. It's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. They don't want her to be a cop, or at least her father doesn't want her to be a cop. And he's also a wife beater. But yeah, what do you like about the family dynamic? I just think that this scene is pretty well acted. We get this sequence of her failing at her training, but then graduating and how happy she is to be at the graduation, but how she's only there with a friend and not with her family. And then we get this shot of her mother leaving her a voicemail. And this really, I think, a beautifully acted close up of Jamie Lee Curtis's face as she listens to the voicemail end and she looks at her badge on her cap and just... You really feel how like this is something that she wants for herself that she's had to really fight for, that it's never been easy for her. And you get that right off the bat. And then the movie immediately contextualizes it with this family dinner scene where you see how much adversity she had to overcome. And you also begin to understand why she overcame it when you see here the implications of abuse from the dad, which are later confirmed. The movie is, I think, pretty subtle about it. Characters keep asking her why she became a cop, and she never says it outright, but it's quite clear that it's because her father beat her mother. Well, I don't know. Is it more complicated than that? Does she also just have a lust for violence? Yeah, and and that even ties back into the family dynamic as well. I think one of the things that she hates about her father is how much of herself she sees in him. This is all interesting stuff, but I feel like it's a little put up on. I feel like we're bringing this into the movie, and... The movie's got the pieces there, but it's it's like a thing where you're allowing yourself to believe this stuff. And it's interesting, but I guess the movie... No, I think it's all there in Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. It's all impressionistic, Ben. But the thing about an impressionistic painting is that it creates meaning through like semi-abstraction or, or reduction that a brushstroke can look like a bird without having to realistically interpret a bird. And in the same way, this movie can be about Jamie Lee Curtis's struggle, Megan's struggle with her own violent impulses and the oppressive patriarchy that she has entered into without having to say any of that, because we can get just a few paint strokes here and there that really do tell that story if you just let them. I can buy that, but I think that also depends on the viewer. One viewer could see a bird and another viewer could just see some really thick paint. It's interesting in the sense that you can kind of bring what you want to it. And I, I, I'm not saying that none of that is in the movie. Like, obviously, there's the implication that she's doing this because of her father. But there's also some movie things in the movie that just don't work for me at all and that kind of wrecks it for me a little bit well we can get more into that in a second i do want to quickly mention that megan's mom is played by the great lois fletcher i think this is kind of a fun little i don't know nod easter egg sort of thing lois fletcher was was nurse ratched in one floor of the cuckoo's nest directed by milos foreman and milos foreman was the head of the film studies program at columbia when Catherine bigelow was there and she supposedly had quite a close relationship to him when she was studying at columbia so it's sort of fun that she pops up here. A very, very different character for her to play. The wilting flower of a mother. I wasn't sure who played the father, but he was 
he was a little over the top. <laughs> He's a working actor. I looked him up. I don't have his name here. He certainly didn't have a lot of other major credits that jumped out to me. I'm also trying to be less of the book report guy, so <laughs> I, I didn't do quite as much research into every person's filmography. So now can we get to the grocery store? Yeah, let's talk about the grocery store because this is a really critical scene and I think a really great scene. I liked the aspect of everyone asking her, why do you want to be a cop? And she always says like a funny thing where she's like, I want to bust people's heads in. And I, I thought that was kind of where the movie was going. Like I thought it was going to be more of a track of her realizing that she's a violent asshole. And maybe the movie does. I don't know. By the end of it, I was kind of like, <laughs> uh, okay. It reminded me a lot of like Hurt Locker and Point Break, where it's about a person who's like addicted to the thrill and is sort of enigmatic is never fully explained. Right. Exactly. That it, I was tracking that a little bit with, with her answers. And I wasn't sure if the movie went all the way with that. She enters a grocery store that's being robbed. She notices it from across the street. Crazy looking Tom Sizemore. He is totally insane. It's amazing. He is so perfect in this movie. I mean, it's because he is this guy. Yeah, he was basically a drug addict since he was 15 years old. And he just, it's like, it's like ultimate method acting. Uh, it works so well. And this is super early in his career. Yeah, it's a prequel to Heat. You know, four years later, or five years <laughs> later, he's like, for me, the action is the juice. All right. So I, I, I try not to go too deep, but I, I did look at Tom Sizemore's filmography a little bit. Guess how many acting credits Tom Sizemore has? idea he must be in like movie of the week every other week so what like 200 or something 226 credits wow. the dude fucking works he works you gotta hustle for that next hit man gotta chase that dragon for being such a specific guy like he's the best at what he does dude anything for for a gram I'm just saying. Uh, maybe he's now. I don't know. <laughs> There's actually a great story from Saving Private Ryan where Spielberg basically forced him to sober up, and he says it saved his life. Oh, there you go. There you go. Now, I don't know if that's true for he's still on the wagon, but Definitely not um, on the wagon. I like to believe so. Definitely not on the wagon. <laughs> Uh, so what do you love so much about this scene other than Tom Sizemore? Well, so, I mean, it's it's the first set piece of the film it's it's the first scene that really sort of plays out for for several minutes i think it does a couple of really interesting things first off on like a visceral emotional level when she is entering the grocery store the scene is scary it's viscerally scary it has this amazing handheld pov photography on these long lenses beautifully shot that puts you so deeply inside jamie lee curtis's shoes and we already have seen her fail. That's the only thing we've seen her do as a cop is fail. And she's immediately put in this crazy high pressure situation. Tom Sizemore looks absolutely like he could blow somebody's head off at any second. And you just feel it. And a lot of it's in her performance as well. You can feel the tension and the pressure. And I honestly couldn't think of the last time I had seen a cop movie where being a cop felt this raw. All right. Remember how you said... You wanted to dissect where our opinions diverged on this movie? I think this is where it is. Because to me, this scene was not that intense. To me, the scene was kind of removed from humanity a little bit. It, it almost felt, and a lot of the movie is like this for me. It feels like a dream, and it feels like it kind of has the stakes of a dream. If you compare this to something like, say, the robbery and point break or the bomb defusals in 
Hurt Locker or the Osama Bin Laden raid in Zero Dark Thirty, I feel like those are way more in-the-moment, intense scenes, whereas this felt a little more like a slow-motion art film music video version of one of those scenes. Like, I didn't feel that she was in a lot of danger. I felt her emotion of, like, holding a big gun and hiding behind a shelf, but... In terms of the situation, it all felt, like you said, with those long lenses, like, I don't feel like I'm there. I don't feel like I'm in any danger. And I don't feel like I am Jamie Lee Curtis. So that might be one of the points where we're kind of trailing off from each other. Because, like, for me, this scene, while it's really beautiful and cool slow motion photography and great performances, I just don't feel the danger. Like, you're feeling it. And I don't know what... The difference is, maybe it's just different ways that we watch movies, but it felt more like art to me than humanity. Uh, Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I can't totally disagree with you. Certainly, Catherine Bigelow as a director improves over time. Her action scenes, her suspense scenes get tighter and more suspenseful. I don't mean to imply that this scene is hugely suspenseful because I don't know that it is. I think what I was trying to get at is that in most cop movies, cops are heroes, right? They're action stars. They're badasses. And here is a cop trying to stop something so simple. It's just a stick up at a grocery store. And yet I felt very profoundly and viscerally how she could die in this scenario, which is something that most cop movies wouldn't bother doing. Certainly not something like Point Break, where it's huge and over the top and fun and thrilling, but it's not scary. It's not unnerving. It's not uncomfortable the way this is. I get you. I get you. I have to ask you something that I have in my notes. Yeah. Do you do you ever have fantasies about being a cop with like a big gun and just like taking down <laughs> bad guys? Is that something you're into, Ben? Uh, You know, not really. When I was a kid, I really wanted to be a pirate. And like, I was definitely into like having pistols as a pirate, but I was always more of the, the high adventure type than okay. the, you don't you want know, to patrol the mean the law. neon streets and take down baddies in the name of justice. The mean neon streets of Williston, Vermont. <laughs> Fair enough. You want to be a pirate. That's cool too. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, how about you? Did you want to be a cop? I've like seen police officers and been like, I could be a cop. I could do this. <laughs> I could do a 10-hour shift, you know, patrol the streets, listen to some synth wave, and fucking bust some heads, which is basically it's total bullshit. Uh, I would be afraid out of my mind. Um, but I do think that this movie kind of taps into that, like, you think you could be a cop? Look at this. Look at this lady doing it in, a, in an interesting way. And it made me think about it. Let me ask you, this question is one we really should say for the end of the movie, but uh, do you think that Megan should be a cop. No, she's a terrible cop. She's like the worst <laughs> cop I've ever seen. She does not have the best judgment in this movie. Terrible judgment. There's one other thing we have to talk about in this scene, which is the Ron Silver of it all. I am, I've, I mean, I've already said it. I'm a huge Ron Silver fan. He really is one of my all time favorite actors. I think I watched Time Cop like when I was way too young, and he's he's like the villain in that movie. He just always left such an indelible impression on me. I remember watching like West Wing in college. He plays uh, Bruno Gianelli, who's the pollster that the White House always uses, like the Democratic pollster. And he's incredible in it. He just there's something about him that's 
wholly unique, a self-possession that is unlike any other actors, except maybe Jeff Goldblum. And when I was researching Ron Silver for this movie, and they're not anything alike, really. I mean, Ron Silver is suave and shark-like when like Jeff Goldblum is bouncy and eccentric, but they both have the same sort of, I don't even know what it is, like magnetism. And it turns out that the two of them got discovered together doing a musical review comedy called El Grande de Coca-Cola in LA, like before they broke out as actors. They were co-stars and that's how they both got their start. I don't get it, man. I don't get the Ron Silver of it all. You and I are like positive and negative on this movie. I just didn't feel him. I've seen characters like this before. Like I've seen To Live and Die in LA with uh, Willem Dafoe being kind of a weird, dangerous, but kind of sexy guy. And this guy just did not get that job done for me, man. I'm sorry to say it. I'm sorry. I don't know if it was the badly fitted suit or if it was the weird (laughs) beard that he had. I just was like... Why is she falling in love with this guy? What the fuck is wrong with him? He's like a werewolf or something. Like, I don't understand. I didn't get it. And I didn't get him. And I don't really know this actor very well. Have you ever seen Heat Vision and Jack? No. Okay. So I'm going to tell you about this. And listeners, I highly encourage you to look this up. You can find it on YouTube. Heat Vision and Jack was never picked up pilot for a TV show that Ben Stiller created in the late 90s or early 2000s. The premise of this show is that Jack Black is an astronaut who flies too close to the sun and absorbs all of the knowledge of human history, but he can only access it when he's in sunlight. And he goes on week-by-week adventures with his talking motorcycle voiced by Owen Wilson. And this is before like any of these guys really blew up. And they are being hunted by NASA's secret weapon, actor Ron Silver playing himself. There's one episode, you can find it on YouTube. It is one of the most incredibly bizarre missed opportunities in TV history because all of the pieces were there. There were so many people about to break out. The humor is still funny today. And yet for some reason, some TV exec passed on it. But Ron Silver is in it and it's exactly, I, I think the word you used, werewolf, is like really accurate because that's he's like a human werewolf. The thing I kept thinking looking at his face is that he's a shark. Like he doesn't look alive behind his eyes. And that's the energy that either is going to work for you and help carry you over some of the more absurd plot elements of his character where he turns into this absolutely lunatic killer by the end of the movie. Or it's not. If he can't bridge that gap for you, then I don't think anyone else could either. He did not radiate that energy that I needed. Uh, You know what movie I really thought of a lot was Manhunter, the Michael Mann Hannibal Lecter movie, which has this guy in it who's playing Francis Dollarhide. He's an amazing actor. He's also in Heat. I wish I could remember his name. Yeah, it's Noonan, Ted Noonan. Or Tom Noonan. And he has this energy. And he's obviously a much weirder looking guy and, you know, more of a freak not posing as a successful yuppie type yeah but that guy is like a psychopath from the second you see him this guy like you have to not be able to read him he's got to be more of a patrick bateman type which is really the comparison point since they're both wall street guys patrick bateman wore it better i'm sorry let's move on this is <laughs> that might be true but that's a circles. whole movie about one guy <laughs> okay So Megan gets in trouble because Ron Silver steals Tom Sizemore's gun. So now she can't prove that he had a gun when she used lethal force on him. And she's getting in trouble with her boss, played by Kevin Dunn. He was great. 
Loved him. I That's insane. He's the worst part of this movie. God damn it, Ben. Why are we so opposite on this one? He is like, he is the epitome of all of the cliche cop shit that this movie can't get away from. That's exactly what I'm saying. It's like lean into this because the the script of this movie is bad. There's so much shit in this script that made me frustrated. When you throw in stuff that's like the ridiculously over the top, slicked back hair police chief then i'm kind of like okay i can forgive you for being a bad script because i see what you're doing you're commenting on police movies except this movie isn't commenting on that character at all it just uses him for exactly the same purpose that every bad cop movie uses that character for maybe this is a bad cop movie Oh, did you ever think of that? Except everything else is so much more interesting. I don't know, man. It might just have a really, really painterly aesthetic and that just threw us. Clancy Brown, who's also introduced in this scene, playing uh, a detective whose name is Man. Very subtle. Yeah, what's what's his what's his full name? Dick Man or something? Nick Man, I think. Nicholas Man. <laughs> Clancy didn't do it for me either. I'm sorry. Jamie Lee is the only actor that I really connected with on any level in this movie. And maybe her mom. Look, Clancy Brown, it's just his whole energy in this movie is so weird. And it's so different from what you'd think. He he comes in and he's written like every bro-y, hyper-masculine cop you've ever seen, telling a story of a victim who had his penis bitten off by a prostitute and sewed on backwards. But everything else he does in this movie has this bizarre energy that like only Clancy Brown can bring to it, where it's sort of lethargic, but also like hypersexual in a way. Like he feels like he is one night away from trying to bang Jamie Lee Curtis in every scene in this movie. And I don't know, something about that feels very pointed and very interesting and speaks to the pervasive sexism that is definitely part of the texture of this movie and speaks to the strange connection between violence and masculinity that is this movie's main theme. Those two things are somehow inseparable. I mean, it's the classic Freudian, how phallic can a gun be? Right. And he's as much a part of that as as Ron Silver is. He's just the other side of the coin. Yeah. This movie is so interesting in terms of like the gun play. Like I've I've never seen a movie quite like it that just is it fetishizing guns? It's sort of continuing our Tremors conversation because I actually feel like this movie is truly fetishizing guns. In the real sense of the word. Yeah, in a very real sense of the word. And like, I'm surprised we didn't end up seeing like a gun dildo or some fucked up sexual gun shit. People keep guns right in the middle of their pants and they pull them out all the time and they, you know, they they, they point them in each other's faces in like very, very suggestive sexually aggressive ways i mean it's all there it's all there we should move on a little further into the movie with with megan's dating life yeah we get a couple scenes showing her personal life i'm gonna disagree with something that you said i think this movie is really well written oh no okay no and case in point is the scene with the cpa friend that comes next that was a well-written scene I'll give you that one. A great scene. Great scene. Megan's friend, Tracy, played by Elizabeth Pena, tries to set her up with her accountant. And as soon as he finds out she's a cop, this dude freaks out. It's such a great scene. And Jamie Lee Curtis is so good in it when she starts giving him shit about his registration. Yeah. No, I I like that scene. I'm not. Okay. 
I don't want to say it's like a badly written dialogue movie and like there are some good character moments and stuff. I just think like the tracking throughout the plot was bad. I did not enjoy a lot of the bullshit that they pulled in this movie. And it was almost like an excuse that it's like, oh, it's but it's kind of a dreamy movie. So don't worry too much about it. We'll get into it at a certain point when we talk about this movie's legacy. But I think that there may be stuff that was cut because there's a lot of this movie that's really well written, particularly the beginning of the movie when everything's getting set up. I think it's really well structured, well written, well acted. But then almost like at the halfway point, the movie just sort of completely loses all threads of the plot and just sort of jumps from scene to scene. Once her and Eugene get together, it was off the rails for me. It, it got fucked up. I think maybe that some of this stuff was like cut or reshot or messed with in the edit to try and make this a more conventional serial killer thriller that was kind of burgeoning in popularity at the time. And we'll talk about some of the evidence I have for that coming up here. But I, I wonder if that's part of what happens. And I, again, that's speaking to sort of what's going on here, where these first couple of scenes move pretty quickly and establish a lot of stuff really efficiently. And it's so strange how the movie kind of forgets to do that after this point. So yeah, after this stuff, we, we get intercut Eugene starting to go crazy. He's got this gun and it like has this weird power over him where it starts to drive him insane and he's carrying it around with him and he's carving the bullets and then he shoots a guy after he trips and the guy sees the gun. He's really into it. What I like about this sequence is, I mean, it's weird and, and you're not quite sure if the movie knows what it's doing. And I still think the movie has it a little bit in hand at this point because it does this thing that I find really, really clever, which is that the way it doles out this information we see first, you know, he's carving the bullets. I was like, that's kind of weird. I wonder what he's doing with that. Then he takes the gun out and he shoots a guy. And we're like, oh shit, I guess he's gone totally insane. Then he meets Megan again by happenstance. And you're like, well, that seems kind of clumsy. How did he meet her? And then we find out that what he carved in the bullet was her name. And all of a sudden it recontextualizes everything else we've seen. And we realize that this guy isn't just somebody who started to go crazy, who happened to run into Megan. This guy was a time bomb waiting to explode. He's been stalking her. He is way more insane than even we thought. Maybe if we had seen him and his normal life before the Megan incident where she shot someone and that kind of turned him. What ended up happening for me was he took the gun and I think I'm watching a police procedural. So I'm like, how did he just get away with that? Nobody asked him. They kind of like dole out information after the fact. And my lizard brain is kind of like still residually mad at the movie for not showing very important elements in the moment we were there. And I get a little frustrated with why they say it maybe like a half hour later. They're like, why wasn't there a gun there? He must have walked away with it. But like, I need to see that stuff and because I need to track the story that you're showing to me as it's happening. I need to see him following her a little bit before they get in the cab. I don't want this Kaiser Sose recontextualization of everything <laughs> that I saw. It's not that kind of movie. I want to track what's going on as it's appearing. It's just two different ways of looking at things. As with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I'm clearly in the minority. <laughs> Between my opinions on these two movies, I probably lost all credibility with our listeners. <laughs> I need the movie to not make me mad at it. 
while I'm watching it. <laughs> That's what I need. And I'm not, I'm not an idiot in this regard. I can handle a movie revealing something later on, but I just think it was sloppy. I thought it was sloppy. But it seems like you really responded to the fact that it recalibrated everything for you later on. The lack of a scene showing how he gets away with a gun is kind of a problem. And the hand-waving line, he wasn't one of the witnesses, he must have walked away beforehand, sucks. Yeah. But it's necessary so that she doesn't realize who he is. And I think the reversal of that, the reveal that their relationship is something that he has worked to manufacture because they start dating. They, they start dating and that, that, that was something that he set in motion in his crazy werewolf stalker ishness is something I really did like that really, even this time, which I had sort of forgotten the sequence that these things happened in and he's carving the bullets. And I'm like, I thought that happened later. And then there's the reveal. And I'm like, Oh shit, that's right. From the second he gets this gun, we don't know when he does it. We don't know how he does it. He finds out who she is. He finds out where she works. He finds out a whole bunch about her and all that stuff. You only start to piece together as a little bit before Jamie Lee Curtis starts to piece it together. Yeah. I think it does a lot to help, you know, if you are buying in like I am, keep the tension ratcheting up. We want her to find out about him more quickly. That said, we should talk about the scene where she does find out about him. So one of the facets of their relationship is they don't have sex. He's playing it cool, and he finally invites her up to his place, and he gets all weird about her gun. Yeah, can I just say his his game is pretty weak? I don't understand why she's into him at all. She makes the first move. I'm not going to keep harping on Eugene, but he's such a weirdo. Why is she with him? What the fuck is she doing? I don't know, he's rich. Who cares? We've already seen that, like, you know, her male role models are not great. Also, can I quickly ask, is this before or after they make her a detective, which really bothered me? What was that plan? It's after. Okay, it's after. They explain that in the movie. It's specifically because what the cops know is there's a killer who's carved her name into the bullets that he's firing. They know that she is somehow the focus of this killer's attention, they need to surveil her constantly. She had just been suspended, so she's a civilian. They can't really have her act as bait for this killer if she's a civilian. So they need her back on the force, and they'd rather have her be with the investigator, Nick Mann, so they make her a provisionary detective in name only so that she can effectively partner him and he can keep eyes on her at all times. So ridiculous. So insane and over the top. I know, that, that, that's actually one of the ones that doesn't bother me nearly as much as the give me your badge and gun scene. I, have, I buy Keanu has to be a surfer over whatever the fuck is going on here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so he gets all weird about her gun in a really interesting, again, interesting is the word I'm going to use most often because the movie is so clear with the line that it is drawing between guns and violence and sex and masculinity. You're like, boom, this movie knows how they're all related, but it isn't particularly clear on what that relationship means, just that it exists. And Ron Silver's fetishistic, toxic relationship with the gun in particular is so interesting and played so strangely. Very few movies would have the balls to do anything like this, at least, you know, mainstream movies. And so he basically reveals himself to her in his sexual excitement over seeing her with 
the gun, he reveals that he was at the supermarket and she pieces together that he must have taken the gun and that he is the killer. This is pretty early in the movie. We're at maybe the halfway point. There's still a lot of movie to go after this point. I do remember being kind of like, oh, where are we going to go now? She's got him dead to rights. What's going to happen? Except she doesn't. He didn't really say anything. They had a relationship. It's her word against his. And he's got the best fucking lawyer on the planet, Richard Jenkins. Yeah, Richard Jenkins is an amazing lawyer. He just seemingly waits outside the apartment ready to <laughs> speak legalese to all the police. That That's the up. second time they're in the apartment. Oh That's the second God. time. And you're saying this isn't a bad <laughs> cop movie where the lawyer is just sitting outside the apartment? Uh, yeah, I, I think he was going to the apartment because... Ron set a trap for them. That's very clear. But that's not this scene. This scene (laughs) is the scene in the jail. And Richard Jenkins is fantastic because he's usually such a kind hearted person. You know, I think of him as 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 like one of like a warm, fuzzy man. And in this movie, he is like a sociopath. He is. He's clearly getting off on getting in the cop's way, which is pretty funny. He's totally endorsing serial killing. And it's so over the top. I, I liked him. He was he was another part of the cast that worked. Just those caricature performances. No, I think he's a little bit more than the character. I think Richard Jenkins imbues his character with like a kind of steely menace that is above and beyond this slimy defense lawyer you'd normally see in a movie like this. There's almost like a weird impression that he is like a kindred spirit with Ron Silver, but he keeps it together just a little bit more. I almost thought that like there was going to be a scene with him and Ron Silver being like, thanks for getting my back. I'm going to go get another one tonight. Like they're just so in cahoots. It's ridiculous. But I think it's all just a piece with the movie's take on masculinity. And that these are all these guys, including detective man and Ron Silver and Richard Jenkins. They're all these killers, all of them. By nature of their of their manhood, they are killers. Now, this is where the movie loses even me for a little bit, because it has to do this dance where they know Ron Silver is the bad guy, but they can't arrest him because they don't have enough evidence. But Ron Silver is still going around killing people. Yeah, man. This is where we get the we get Tracy's murder. Tracy's murder was scary as fuck. I will say that way better scene for me than the grocery store scene like that was sudden it was really dangerous and it freaked me out how he just appeared from behind the stairwell and like growing up in new york i've i've been in many of those my own apartment has the exact same layout where someone could just come at you from that long hallway to the trash area in the back and that freaked me the hell out a little bit how he just appeared out of nowhere grabbed her from behind and shot it was fucked up But then this leads to the apartment scene that you were just ridiculing, where even though he literally held Jamie Lee Curtis and shot her best friend, they still don't have enough evidence to arrest him. And Richard Jenkins is waiting right outside to tell them that. With police, for some reason. He he storms in with a bunch of cops. Even though it is clearly shown that he was expecting them to come and it's sort of a little trap that he set for them. Uh, Dude, it just was not... Not cool, bruh. There's just too many leaps. Like, you need to arrest the guy. Who? What lawyer just runs into the apartment to defend his client? It was over the top, but then the rest of the movie's tone was too kind of, like, self-serious. It was, like, the wrong puzzle pieces sticking together. I don't totally disagree, except I feel like most of the pieces that were wrong were the ones that you seem to think were right. Exactly. I just, it's, 
It's apples and oranges for you and I. Let's speed through the rest of this then. Um, we get the resolution of his conflict, of, of Jamie Lee's conflict with her parents. Uh, she arrests her dad, but then chooses to let him go. Which is the worst scene in the movie when, when he comes to the house. The, the excuse that they needed yeah. for her to leave the house so they could then have the scene of them being like, your friend is here. That was when I was just like, this is crap. I'm sorry. Well, and nobody acts like a human being in that scene. Like the parents seem to be totally unaware of the fact that the exchange happening between the other two people makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. <laughs> the dad just starts acting like he didn't just go through a life-changing event where his own daughter arrested him. He's like watching the TV like, hey, look at this. It's just so bad, man. I don't know why yeah, you I like this. I agree. This scene is bad. This stuff, this is the bad part of the movie that you just kind of have to get through to get to the final shootout, which is awesome. Well, the whole park setup, act three that starts at the park and there's unburying the gun and it gets very werewolf-esque. Right. He's like naked and he's burying the gun. and Yeah. And a romance kind of blossoms between the detective and Jamie Lee. I think romance is a strong word. <laughs> Again, it's this weird, you know, sexual power of violence that having now stared into the face of this killer, the only way that these two people can express themselves is by sleeping with each other. I don't think there's any implication that she loves him or that he loves her, but just that this is the strange power that guns have on people okay this is as good a time as any what is your intellectual read on the psychosexual implication of guns in this movie what is it ben what is it that is speaking to you on this intellectual level about guns and sex and all that shit so i i think the movie defies a little bit of an easy categorization here but if i had to put it some way it would be that there is a fundamental drive in human beings towards violence and that drive is explicitly connected to our sexual drive that sex is an act of violence as we see in this scene between clancy brown and jamie lee curtis and then between ron silver and jamie lee curtis a few minutes later and guns are the ultimate expression of that connection because they are instruments of violence that function like sexual organs I like that. You're, you're <laughs> reeling the movie in a little bit more. That's some real, that's some real freshman year psychoanalysis <laughs> shit right there. Okay, I just have some random notes for this section. Um, how much random shit do you think is buried in Central Park? There must be so much stuff. <laughs> I have a friend who's buried a cat in Riverside Park. There's so much stuff buried out there. Go there with a uh, metal detector someday. It would be hilarious if he digs up a gun, but it's like a different gun. I guess what kind of frustrated me as well towards the end of this movie is that like Ron Silver just seems to be flying by the seat of his pants a little bit and he's outwitting the entire New York City Police Department, but he also seems to just be kind of the making it up as he's going along type and that didn't really track for me very well like how does he keep getting away with this shit i think the biggest problem the movie has is this middle of the the second half of the second act where it tries to pretend that he is some kind of criminal mastermind which he's not he's just a crazy dude with a gun right he's he's driven by impulse he's driven by drive he he is primal he is animal and the best scenes of him and his character functions at its best when he is somebody who is completely out of control with himself, yeah. who is almost frightened by his own transformation 
that that this gun has wrought in him. But should we move to the final gunfight? Well, yeah. So Ron shoots shoots Clancy Brown. We get a lot of naked Clancy Brown and a lot of naked Ron Silver in this scene. He attempts to rape Jamie Lee Curtis, um, although it's more, again, like it's not even about the power dynamics that rape is usually about. It's much more about like the raw sexual energy of violence. And then he runs away and she goes to the hospital and puts on her old uniform. I like that. I like that as a symbolic touch that she is no longer. (laughs) When I I was watching the movie, I thought she had taken the fat cops uniform that she had punched in the face. I'm not wholly convinced that that isn't what happens because the symbolism (laughs) of her putting on a man's clothes to do what she's about to do is really rich, but the movie does not make it clear and it fits her really well. Yeah. It's it. And this is sort of where I finally opened my eyes a little bit on this movie, this final sequence of just this ridiculous over the top gunfight, but not in the way of like, over the top of like point break. It's like, it's like this weird painterly approach to doing a gunfight where every shot rings out really loud and there's just people running and it's just two pistols against each other and people just staring at each other. And everything is shot handheld and in close up on long lenses with super shallow depth of field. So you can't really place anything exactly where it is. But it doesn't matter. This is where I finally realized on this movie. I was like, Oh not everything in this movie matters that much. It's more what you're taking in from the ideas that are in the ether and the ideas that are that you're kind of seeing in the shafts of light through the bullet riddled target practice paper. Like that's what this movie is more about than however she got her uniform back. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I just don't. I don't care, man. I'm sorry. The painting doesn't do it for me. So anyway, is there anything else you want to say about that final gunfight? I don't want to leave it on a sour note. Well, I just I think that it's quite tense. I think it's quite beautiful. I think the photography is incredible. I think the squibs and the use of slow motion are all like really visceral and exciting. This sets a standard for how you might shoot a sequence like this that people are still aping today. I don't know that they are directly inspired by this film, but I think she was just, you know, ahead of the curve. Yeah, totally next level when you compare it to a lot of stuff that you see in the 80s. It's really beautiful, like action cinema. And even though it doesn't make any sense how Ron Silver found her on the subway, this just incredible prolonged shootout that they have that goes from the subway up to the street and down the street and into cars. It's super violent, but in a way that feels dangerous not titillating that i really appreciated uh i really liked how he used the hot dog stand as like mobile cover i felt like that was like a shredder being dropped in the garbage truck as far as like nyc things that just you don't know why you don't see in more movies (laughs) that last look that she gives him when she's firing the gun she sort of finally embraces the two-handed magnum shot on him it's exactly how he said he wanted her to hold the gun when he was when it was about them having sex yeah that was a great little moment and i was wondering like do you think he enjoyed getting shot by her 100 percent. he wanted her to shoot him all the way back in that hotel room yeah probably back in the grocery store well he wanted to get shot like that he's like yes this is how i get to die finally it's beautiful like i thought that's what it was all boiling up to he basically got her to shoot him in like the sexiest way possible well and for him it's about 
you know, her embracing the same madness that drives him. Exactly. And it kind of looks like she did a little bit. She looked, she looked pretty totally. driven in that moment. Um, more driven than she looked when she shot Sizemore. There she looked kind of terrified. So, who right. knows? I mean, she makes it clear that she is going to hunt this man down. Once Once he shoots Clancy Brown, there's no more room for arrest. Like, this is hunt to kill. So, final review... Anything else to say before we get to the legacy? No, I think all of the points that you make are perfectly valid. And many people will see this movie and agree with you. But I would encourage you listeners to try for yourself to just give it a chance because there is something really special here underneath all the messiness that you won't find in almost any other movie that you can you know ever see. And I, I think that's worth something. It is worth something. And I just have to say, I can't forgive the movie for how dumb it was being. But I can still hang out with it and have a good time for an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty short, too. That's nice. <laughs> so let's talk about the legacy. So this movie, like I said, opened March 16th, 1990 to just under $3 million. So pretty bad opening. One of the interesting things about this film is I could not find any information on its budget anywhere. And I looked, this is what partly leads me to believe that there may have been some meddling or tinkering with this film. I think that there was some serious production difficulties that nobody wants to talk about. It was definitely a higher budget than $3 million or even the total 8 million that it ended up grossing domestically because they're shooting in New York. They're shooting on location. They're shooting in wall street, firing shots. Yeah. This, this is real deal filmmaking here. I wouldn't be surprised if it cost twice as much as it grossed. I'm pretty sure the scene where Ron Silver is working out and starts to hear voices is a reshot scene. One, because it doesn't really look like any other scene in the movie. And two, it has like nothing to do with his character, but might have been something that a studio exec thought would have made his character made more sense. So anyway, the point being that this movie doesn't make a lot of money. It would have been just completely forgotten if Bigelow hadn't you know, eventually went on to have a, quite a strong career. And she does a good job following this up with Point Break, which is one of the greatest action films of all time. Literally n the next year she releases that. It makes me wonder if this movie was shot like 88. It seems like she wouldn't have been able to shoot this in like summer 89 and then go immediately to Point Break. Maybe it was shelved or something. That might speak again to there being some production difficulties. I didn't look at the date on the article, but I read a really interesting article in the LA Times that was written during the production that was just interviewing a bunch of different people. And her next film at the time was like a sci-fi film that never got made. So she wasn't even working on Point Break at that point. And while she was making this movie, she was married to James Cameron. Uh, does that happen while she's making this film or does that happen a little bit later? I believe their marriage was like 89 to 91, two year marriage. So, God, is that right? Because he helps her make Strange Days, which is her follow-up to Point Break. He's the one who gets the studio to finance that film. I'm sure they still had a wonderful relationship after divorcing, but they definitely were married in this era. But what is the ultimate legacy of the movie? I don't think, I mean, basically, like I said, it's it's a movie that's been that's been forgotten. I think there's interesting stuff here. I think this is a movie that might really gel with some people. Uh, that you can really get a kick out of. You can spend a lot of time dissecting and analyzing from its visuals to its themes. But because of its messiness and because of its lack of commercial success, most people aren't going to 
aren't going to do that. Sorry, Ben. Should we talk some nineties themes? Sorry to be so down on your movie. No, it's fine. I mean, I, 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 again, I chose this movie because I thought people wouldn't have seen it and I want them to see it. Yeah. I hope that at least some people walk away from this, from my enthusiasm thinking it might be worth a shot. Totally. Nineties themes. I have one. Stockbrokers are jerks. They are the worst scum of the universe. (laughs) Clearly in 1990, people were thinking a lot about this. Yeah, just people who exploit the economy. Because, I mean, Richard Gere wasn't a stockbroker. And, like, Ron Silver's, like, on the floor of the exchange. He's, like, a commodities trader. He's he's getting his hands dirty. Yeah, I was like, why does he need to get his rocks off so bad? He's already in the shit, man. He's, like, fucking Leo in Wolf of Wall Street. Well, but the movie implies that it's because of that environment that he is so... That he doesn't see human beings as human anymore. That Wall Street, that the exchange, that his career, that the pursuit of wealth has turned him into a werewolf. So Wall Street in 1990 was clearly on the minds of everyone. All right. I have I have a new one, too. I wanted to debut with this one. And it ties back into, in fact, our discussion of Hunt for Red October, where we talked about the end of the Cold War and how that kind of left the United States in an interesting predicament where it had had a singular antagonist for half a century. And now it was in a new world without that uh, to face. And I was thinking about our episode on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when Will read off all those really interesting crime statistics. And I think that one of the themes we might see presenting itself is the idea that the existential threat to America at this time wasn't another nation. It was crime. It was domestic crime. This was part of the drug war, Reagan's drug war against all drugs, which ultimately failed. People were definitely thinking about crime as an existential threat. And that had been going on for 20 years. Like New York was already crime ridden in the mid 70s. But I think the 90s, as we said, you know, like Giuliani era in New York in a few years is when America starts to focus on it as its primary boogeyman. The thing that it needs to tackle in this decade of peace internationally. Yeah, you have Hillary Clinton, super predators, all that crazy shit. Right. And it's not just in this movie. It's not just in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's part of Pretty Woman. Yep. I mean, that movie, like Vivian Ward is a prostitute because prostitution is so rampant in Hollywood that she can just, you know, pick up a random arbitrageur and not have it be a big deal. Now, we have in a couple of weeks uh, a crime triple feature where we can really see how this plays out. But I definitely think that's something to keep an eye on is is crime in particular as being a focus. I also just wanted to mention, you know, that this movie is very much about forefronting the expanding roles for women, not only because it's about a female cop and it's an action movie with a female lead, but it's made by a female director. And it really is a significant contrast to the movies that we've watched so far where the women have either been romantic characters, even if they're the main character of the movie, like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, they're still there as a romantic object. Right. Or they've been villains like Annie Wilkes. And frankly, Annie Wilkes feels progressive compared to someone like April O'Neil. And <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie is leaps and bounds above that. Do you think Jamie Lee Curtis knows what turbulences sorry no it's good it's good callback (laughs) i guess is that all we got i think that's it okay no i mean i thank you for introducing me to the movie and i do encourage people like you have been to to at least check it out because there are some really cool elements to the visuals the soundtrack also is pretty awesome it's sort of like a michael mann 
esque situation. It's very Michael Mann. I was definitely thinking that. I mean, this this movie owes a pretty big debt to Michael Mann. Totally. Probably more than any other filmmaker. And to French impressionist painters, in my opinion. And maybe Sam Peckinpah. And just you know, Shakespeare. <laughs> Genesis. And the Lumiere brothers. <laughs> yeah. Well, until next time. Until next time, this is Ben. And this is Nat. Signing off. Bye.